You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. How many of you know that Satan is a liar? You guys know that? Um, and it's not simply that Satan is a liar, it's that Satan is an incredibly crafty liar. He lies in such a way that you cannot believe that what he's saying is a lie. You guys ever encountered somebody that always tells you 99% of the truth? Right? You know that somebody tells you 99% of the truth is 100% a liar? Right? Because it's usually always that 1% that totally changes the information, right? Totally changes the perspective, totally changes the story and the narrative of it. And if you withhold that, then it seems like this is absolutely the truth. And it's kind of the moment that we find ourselves in, in, uh, in our lives as Western uh, Americans, um, that we are told uh, that there are these big issues uh, that fall primarily along ideological lines, and you get to choose between one of those two things, right? Uh, you, you have to either, you know, follow the Republican Party line or the Democratic Party line, uh, and this past month, obviously, we've had three major issues that have been the central things of that. We had the Uvalde shooting that centered around gun uh, issues and how that plays on party lines. This was uh, June was uh, declared Pride Month, and so you had the whole LGBTQ dynamic and where you were supposed to land uh, on that. And then, of course, this uh, past Friday, uh, the Supreme Court ruling striking down Roe versus Wade, and so the uh, the dynamic of uh, abortion and how that plays out in the United States. And so it seems like as we look at these things, we have a clear choice, one side or the other. Where am I going to land on that? And how is that going to play out? And it's always interesting to me to just watch how people respond to that and what people say and kind of where they land. And some of it's just your standard run-of-the-mill you know, rhetoric of answers and things like that. Sometimes, though, there's things that are said that surprise me. Um, one of those, obviously, was uh, with the striking down of Roe versus Wade. Uh, I saw a number of individuals on the left, on the pro-abortion uh, side, that made statements functionally, well, not even functionally to the extent of, but explicitly saying, uh, it is unkind to bring a child into the world in which they will not be cared for well. And so, just going, I mean, that sounds a lot like eugenics in that kind of a that kind of rhetoric. And so we look at that and we go, obviously that's just, uh, you know, that's terrible and that's wicked and that's awful. But simultaneously, on the rejoicing side of that, I also see a dehumanizing of people on the other side, right? Uh, basically to the extent of, can you imagine being such a terrible human being if you think X, Y, or Z, and thus taking a person from where they are an image bearer of God and lessening them to the reality of that. And if you see that and you watch that and you look for that, you can see Satan's lie as it throws apart because he says, here's your two choices. And the reality of both of those directions dehumanize people and they're actually the same road that's just mirrored to look different. 
And this is the challenge that we face as we talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ because the Scriptures give us a dichotomy, two, die being two, two ways, two paths, the path of righteousness and the path of wickedness. And we've talked about that. We spent time in Psalm chapter 1 laying out that blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Right, this dichotomy, two distinct paths, two distinct uh, ways of going. But the challenge that we face, that is what we're going to look at today in Psalm 50, is that sometimes Satan takes the way of righteousness, the way of Christianity, the way of that, and he, he takes that and he makes it look just like the way of wickedness, but with enough Christian bent to it that we miss it. And really what we're functionally calling ourselves to as Christians today is what I would call the third way. The way that actually is the way of righteousness. The way that actually values what God says and what God calls us to. And this is what Psalm chapter 50 is really all about. It is a psalm of judgment. Now, this is, again, psalms are kind of weird. They're songs. They're poems. They were intended to be sung. This was a, a psalm of Asaph, uh, one of the prolific writers of the psalms. Uh, and it emphasizes the reality of what God has to say about judgment. And here's the thing about this. As you begin reading it, it feels like you can look at it and say, oh yeah, the wicked, the world, that's who he's talking about in judgment. But you're going to see something distinct in this. That yes, he's talking about the wicked. Yes, he's talking about the unrighteous. But the object or the, uh, the people, the audience of his psalm, the audience of God's message is his people. We don't need to miss that. Psalm chapter 50 verse 1 begins with this. The mighty one, God, the Lord has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of its sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before Him and it is very tempestuous around Him. He summons the heavens above the earth and the earth to judge His People, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Selah. The psalm begins with a summons to court that the God of the universe is summoning His peoples of earth to Himself in a place of judgment. And he stands as one that is incredibly distinct and different. The uh, three Hebrew words that are used at the beginning, they actually are the, uh, the very beginning of uh, the, uh, the psalm itself. El Elohim Yahweh. El, this is the Mighty One. Elohim God Yahweh the Lord. It is like the fullness of His name. I am the one who is mighty over all things. I am the God of gods. There is none like Me. And I am who 
I am. It's like the strongest statement of, that you could possibly make when somebody asks, so who are you? And you'd give this, you know, like, remember the scene from Gladiator, right? When he's standing in there and he says, who are you? And he says, you know, I am Maxis Aurelius, son of whatever. And he gives this whole thing and it's just like, this is who I am. This is how God begins. This distinction of what gives you the right to stand in judgment over us. And he says, because I'm the mighty one, the God of gods, there is none like me, and I am and always have been and always will be. And I, this God, have spoken. Summoning from all the earth, from the rising of its sun to the setting, this picture of continually every person that is on the planet, and it begins with this image of saying that God's beauty, His splendor, His majesty, that earth uh, points towards it, that the heavens above uh, act as a, uh, a witness to His greatness, to His grandeur. Uh, you could almost read the first time that the, a Jewish person would be reading this and they say, yes, God will stand over judgment. And of course, every time we watch the news and we hear about what's happening in the Middle East and we, happen, we hear what's happening in Ukraine and we hear what's happening in downtown Chicago and we hear what's happening in, uh, in Kenya or in the Congo or in South America, all of these things we say, yes, God, let the evil be judged. It's one of the great encouragements that we can have as we read of wickedness in the world that we know that no evil gets past God. That none of it gets uh, slips by and is unpunished. And so it sounds like this is the kind of judgment that he's describing here. But God Himself in verse 5 says this specifically. He says, Gather my godly ones to Me. Those who have made a covenant with Me. The Jewish people, as they stepped into covenant with God, identified with Him. It was a, uh, this picture of marriage as we... Uh, probably the closest descriptor that we have of it in our modern day society that you now are identified with this other person. You are united to them. And He is calling them uh, to Himself... And he says, the heavens, of, uh, the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is the judge. And then he just simply says, Selah, which in, in uh, the Psalms, most scholars think it means something like, stop and think about this, or pause, or an interlude. Kind of this, you have the, uh, the profound statement in the song, and then there's going to be some musical harp stuff for you to sit there and think about the reality of what was just said. And God is going to address His people, but He's going to address them in judgment of two categories, two types of individuals that need to be judged within the reality of where He's at. And I think the caution for us in this is that we are in this passage. Because this is Him saying this is His people. This is not him looking at the world and getting frustrated at the world for acting like the world. Which I think is a good reminder for us as Christians because we very often do get very, very frustrated for the world acting like the world when in fact we should just think of it in the reality of going, well, the dead rot. You never go to a funeral and get frustrated with the corpse for decomposing. It's just doing what it's doing. 
It's just living the way that it's living. Of course the world's going to act like it doesn't know and love God because it doesn't know and love God. And so we don't get frustrated or angry or diminish it because of that. No, the heart of somebody who is a person of God is always introspective in saying, but for the grace of God, so go I. And these two categories that he's going to describe of judgment uh, fall under what we would say in English uh, is just the word hypocrisy. But it's two different forms of hypocrisy. Generally speaking, if we talk about hypocrisy, uh, we define it as what? How would you define standard hypocrisy? Saying one thing and doing another, right? That's the standard. That's the standard. It's easy to say. You know, you say you're supposed to be loving. You're not being loving. You're a hypocrite, right? That's the standard definition of it. And that's one category that he's going to describe there. But Jesus does something different with all kind of sin, right? Jesus says, "You've heard it said, don't commit adultery," right? That's very distinctly having sex with somebody that's not your spouse. Pretty cut and dry. But that's not what Jesus describes it as, right? Jesus describes it as lusting after somebody else that's not your spouse. Which is very different than having sex with somebody that's not your spouse. But Jesus says it doesn't matter. It's the same sin, right? Jesus does this with all kinds of sins. Murder, uh, envy, all these kind of things. Hypocrisy is no different than that. Jesus defined hypocrisy different than we do. Jesus didn't define hypocrisy simply as saying one thing and doing something different. Jesus defined hypocrisy as saying one thing, doing that one thing, but with a wrong motive. Remember, right? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who, what do they tell you to do? They tell you to pray. What do they do? They pray. Why do they do it? so that people would see them. He says, when you give, don't give like the hypocrites. Right? They tell you to give. They give themselves. Why do they give? So that people will see them doing it. Their motivation is actually what defines their hypocrisy, not their action. Now you see, that's a very slippery thing because if we believe Jesus at His Word, then more often than not, we're hypocrites. Not because we don't do the things that we say we're supposed to do, but because our motivation for them is wrong. And this is what Psalm 50 says. Verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. And your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goat out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. God makes a distinction in the act of worship that these... Uh, these Israelites, His chosen people, were doing the things that God had said. God told uh, David to build a temple. And then He told him, stop. No, your son's going to do it. Solomon built a temple. And in that temple, they followed Moses' law that had been through the tabernacle of what it meant for them to rightly approach God. 
how to offer sacrifices for sin, how to offer sacrifices for, uh, for fellowship, how to offer sacrifices of praise. And they were doing these things continually. But something changed in, men, in these people's hearts where they began doing the acts of religious expression, doing the acts of religious service, but they began doing it thinking that God needed it. That God was needy in this action. He says, I don't reprove you that you're not doing sacrifices. That you're, you're not following the law that I've given you. No, no, no. You're doing that. But he says, but what you need to know is that every beast in the forest, all the birds in the air, everything that crawls along the ground, all of it's mine. I don't need anything from you. You don't come to church on a Sunday morning and begin singing songs of praise as though God's feelings are down. That He really needs just some encouragement. Like we're singing the song that says, God, You're so good. And He's like, really? Really am I good? Yes, God, You're so good. I don't know. I don't know if I'm good. God, You're so good. Right? It's not as though God has an emotional complex that He's, uh, that he's uh, heartbroken over and we need to build Him up and encourage Him as though uh, He's some being that is needy. He says, no, in verse 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon Me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor Me. When it comes to our Christian expression, our Christian witness, the life that we're called to as a Christian, we do not do the things that we do because God needs us to do them. As though God cannot accomplish His will, His purpose, His plan in this world apart from us. In God's sovereignty, He does not look down upon humanity and go, man, if Chris doesn't do that thing, I'm in trouble. Man, if Kimberly doesn't step up and act this way, we, uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to fulfill this, right? If Derek isn't obedient in this one thing, I'll never accomplish this whole list. You know, my list of things is going to be impossible, right? God's not like me as I was for the last two weeks without my, uh, my, my child labor as I sent them down to Anchorage helping out for, you know, doing, doing, their, uh, doing their biathlon camp and then all the things that they were there. And it was just me by myself and I'm sitting there going, man, unless I get them boys back, I'm stuck. That's not God. And yet so often we think that's the way God works. God needs us to worship Him so that He can accomplish His purposes. God's glory will be less if we don't offer up His worship. And He says to them, listen, this is not the way that it is. Our religious expression as it comes to obedience, as it comes to worship, as it comes to our Christian expression should never come from a motivation that God needs it as though He's lacking. 
And this is why he says, specifically, what is it that he requires from us? He says, offer uh, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. When it comes to thankfulness, we are resting on something outside of ourselves, right? I've been really thankful for good weather that's allowed me to be able to work on the, the duplex you know, without getting rained on and stuff. Do you know how much influence I had on the good weather that I experienced in those days that I worked on that? None. Not a bit. So what it is is not a, a, uh, a, uh, an offering of boasting. Look what I accomplished. Look what I was able to do. I showed up to work. I showed up to church. I read my Bible. I prayed. I tithed. I was nice. I said the things that I ought to say. I did these things and I give to God an offering of boasting. He says, don't do that. Think of all the bulls that I've sacrificed. Think of all the goats that I've sacrificed. Think of all the the songs that I've sung in the temple courts. Think of the offerings that I've given. All of these things that God commanded them to do but their motivation behind them was not right. Friends, this is a very dangerous place that we as Christians can live because it looks like righteousness and Satan has mirrored it to look like the way that we are to walk in. And God says, if that's the case, I don't need it. If you're going to show up to church because you think God needs it, then don't even show up. It's always about us needing. The number one thing that God needs from you is your neediness. And to the extent that you understand your neediness, that's the extent that you'll experience His graciousness. If you don't think you need God very much, you won't experience God very much. That's the lens that you can read the entire New Testament through. All the stories... You think of all the people that came to Jesus, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came to Jesus. But they came to Him with testing to see which political leaning He landed on. To see which, where He was going to land on the, their present moment, their present issues. They didn't need Him. They wanted to manipulate Him. But who are the people that experienced Jesus? People like Nicodemus who came needy in the middle of the night. People like the woman who had been bleeding for years and years and years. She came needy touching the hem of His garment. The woman who comes and weeps at His feet, she comes needy. Not that she has something to offer God. Not that she had something to build Jesus up. But all of them came in desperate need. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows. What you say that you're going to do, do those things. If you say, God, I'm going to do this, then do this. Honor Him in that way. Honor Him in obedience. Call upon me in the day of trouble. When we're in trouble, when we are needy, He's there. He says, I will rescue you and you'll honor me in that. That looks like the way of righteousness, but if you followed me on that, Satan has disguised it, has manipulated it in such a way where it's actually not the way of righteousness, but it sure does look like it. But then the second way is the one where we can point to and say, no, this is classic hypocrisy. 
Right? That one is saying one thing, doing that one thing, but with the wrong motive. This one is classic hypocrisy. In verse 16 he says, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell me my statutes? And to take my covenant in your mouth. You hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And when you associate or and you associate with adulterers, you let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames conceit, and you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have kept silence. He describes these under the category of people that he says he's called my people. People that profess to be His followers. And He says of them, the wicked. Why? Because they know the information. They carry it upon their lips. But their life models none of it. It doesn't look like any of it that God has said. They love and cherish breaking the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments. To not commit adultery. They love those that are in that kind of a category. Uh, To uh, not uh, steal. And they love those that can get them rich in that kind of capacity. And to not bear false witness. They love the lie. But in all of that, if you ask them, are you a follower of Yahweh? Their answer would be, yes. Yes, it is. And he says of them, these things you've done, and up until this point, I've kept silent. And there's an important point in this, that in God's sovereign power, He's also very patient. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that our Heavenly Father is patient. I'm so thankful He's not like the cartoons where the, the person does something that you know, oh yeah, that's not good. They blaspheme God and right, there's just a black spot on the ground and there's the thunderbolt. That that's not the way that God works. That all of us have had periods of our lives where we lived in abject sin and God didn't smote us dead. His patient graciousness waited. He said, these things you've done and I've kept silent. And here's the distinct part of this. Because these individuals profess to be followers of Him. But if you ever talk to somebody that professes to be a Christian and you ask them to describe God, the God that they will describe looks a whole lot like them. And likes the things that they like and approves of the things that they approve of. They have a God that is mirrored after themselves rather than the other way around. And look what God says. These things you've done and I've kept silent. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Dear Christian, we need to understand that as close as we draw near to God, He is not like us. He is wholly different. His ways are higher than our ways. 
Which is why when we encounter something that God has said and our soul bucks against it, and we say, I don't like that. I don't approve of that. That seems narrow. It seems uh, angry or unloving or whatever the, the adjective that we want to throw onto it. We need to cause ourselves to be paused in that because if our temptation is either to say, then God can't be real because this feels right. Or we take God and we conform Him into our image and we make God approve things that He does not approve of. Both of those are incredibly dangerous. And He says to us here, you thought I was just like you. Now consider this, you forget God. That sounds a whole lot like Psalm 14 that we looked at. It says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. No God for me. We've forgotten who God is. Conformed Him into our image. Or I will tear you to pieces, He says, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors Me. And to him who orders his way right... I shall show the salvation of God. Now it sounds like, as we read that passage, that there's a whole lot of our salvation, a whole lot of our redemption that is up to us walking in, walking the line, walking the way, walking the path. And were it not for the graciousness of God to give us the Old Testament, to shed light on the New Testament, we wouldn't know what that was because as we read this, we go, Dad, gummit, I find myself on both sides of that camp of hypocrisy every now and then. There's times where I'm doing good. I'm doing the things I ought to do. But if I check my heart, if I check my motive, it's off. And there's definitely times in my life when I'm saying one thing and doing something different. And we go, how do I find the way? How do I find the path? How do I walk that thin line? The world gives me two options and I'm going like, these both seem like terrible things. How do I land on this middle thing? Thanks be to God that He told us through Jesus, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus walked the line that, guys, we couldn't walk. It was too narrow. We kept falling off of it. And so in the midst of this, this sacrifice of thanksgiving that honors Him, to Him who orders or organizes His life, centralizes it around one central thing. He says, to Him I'll show the salvation of God. One of the distinct things that we've uh, taught throughout the years of being here that I think is a shock to many people is many people think that Old Testament people got saved different than New Testament people. That Old Testament people got saved by being good Jews. Following good Jewishness. Making the sacrifices when they needed to do them and following the, uh, the religious holidays when they were supposed to and being kosher, not eating the things and wearing certain stuff. All of and if they did that, then they got saved. But for us as Christians, post-Jesus, we're just saved by faith. Friends, we've always only ever been saved by faith. 
And that was the point of all of this, of showing us, guys, you who are my followers, you're going to fall off of these. So your hope rests not on you, but on something outside of you. Your thanksgiving does not rest on your ability. It rests on something outside of you. As you order your way, center it around something. That something that you are centering your life around is outside of you. And if you do these things, put your hope in something that you have no control over, then I will show you the salvation of God. We just now know that that thing that we center our life around... And we just now know that the thing that we give thanks for is the person and work of Jesus who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. As we find ourselves in uh, an incredibly politically charged moment, which is turning into like a decade, (laughs) we're feeling torn into camps that are being told to us, this camp is good, this camp is bad. And the reality of it is, Satan's just muddled both aspects of them in such a way where to some people this one looks like the way of righteousness and to others this looks like the way of righteousness. And the truth of it is, there's a third way that really is actually only the way and the other one is just one highway that leads to destruction. And that's why Satan's so tricky. Because we can do the right things with the wrong motive. And we can say and believe the right things but not do them. And both of those we can consider ourselves like we're doing great. Like we're doing good. The world, they're going to live like the world's going to live. But by the grace of God and the witness of people who love and know Jesus who have been transformed by the reality of this gospel truth, they'll continue down the path of death and destruction. Ultimately, hopelessness. Let it not be true of us. As we think about our own motives, as we think about our own actions, as we look at those things, let us never rest on our goodness as though it's something that we accomplished. We look to God and we want to be in awe of Him. That He is the Mighty One. God. The Lord. And He's spoken. And if God has spoken, then nothing else matters. And if God hasn't spoken, nothing matters. That's the central angst weight of the reality of God. That since God has spoken, it means everything. We rest on Him. We know He has spoken. And so we believe it. We center our lives around it. And we strive to live according to the way that He has said. Not because somehow it earns us something. That God needs us to do these things. No, we do it simply because He is who He is. And because He is who He is, He's worthy of our obedience. 
He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of us offering an offering of thanksgiving to Him. Because He really is good. He really is good. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Psalm 50. Thank You that it shakes us from our slumber. Forgive us, Lord. For the hypocrisy that we live. Help us, teach us, Holy Spirit, to check our motives. Why do we do the things that we do? And Holy Spirit, convict us for the things that we know we ought to do. And we tell other people that we ought to do, and yet we don't do them. Jesus, help us to trust You that You are sufficient, that we desperately need You. We love You so much, God. It's Your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.